If you have a Bible, open it up to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be looking at Galatians 5, 7 through 15 today. And uh, as you turn there, I'm going to invite Miss Kathy Banks to come on up here. She's going to read our passage today. Uh, so if you have found it or if you're still looking, if you don't mind standing up, if you are able uh, for the reading of God's word, um, if you're a guest, I also want to say welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, we don't do this to be uber churchy or weird, uh, but we like to give a physical reminder to all of us that these are the words of God. Um, we're not adding to these. We're not making these up. Um, it is as if God is saying these to us once again, uh, and they come with the authority of God. So um, thank you for standing up, and thank you for being here, Kathy, and reading for us. Uh, so take it away whenever you're ready. Okay. This is Galatians 5, 7 through 15. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? The, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will, know, that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, what, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision... Why am I still persecuted? In the case of the offense of the cross has been, in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much. And you can uh, just hold that for uh, how and uh, he'll come up and give our benediction. Uh, let's pray as we jump in. And uh, I'm excited to walk through this text with you and uh, to see Christ and see the gospel in it um, together. Father, um, God, thank you for just a fun time in your word. Um, God, I pray that you'd be with us, um, that you would teach us. Um, God, I've got nothing to offer these folks uh, from my own wisdom, uh, from my own flesh. Um, God, we just want to hear from you. Um, help us to be a church who longs to hear from our creator, our sustainer, our God, our savior. Um, God, from your word, um, week in and week out. So be with us, guard me from error, keep me faithful to your word. And uh, God, um, use it to conform us to the image of your son and to accomplish your mission. Um, God, I pray that many uh, would find freedom in Christ today um, through this passage. Um, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. There's a group um, in Arizona, at the Arizona um, Cultural Research Center. Um, it's at Arizona Christian University, and they put out what they call uh, the American Worldview Inventory every year. Um, it's led by George Barna. Uh, some of you, if you're uh, familiar with Christian circles, you've heard of Barna and all that Barna Institute puts out as far as research. Um, but they put out some data in 2020 um, that said 48% of Americans said that you can do good works and be good enough to earn your place in heaven. So they did a survey, and 40% of Americans uh, believe that you can be good enough and do good enough to earn your way to heaven. Now, we might expect that from just American society in general. Uh, what's shocking about this study that they put out in 2020 is that when they take those 48% of Americans and they isolate the Christians, 
um, those who identify as Christians or claim to follow Jesus, the number didn't go down, the number went up. And 52% of the self-proclaimed Christians that were surveyed say that salvation can be earned by doing good works and being a good person, which is alarming. Because what that means is that 52% of professing Christians in 2020 were not actually Christian because they believed a false gospel. They might have Christian values, they might appreciate Christian teaching, they might listen to Christian music, their kids might be in Christian schools, they might go to church, but they are not born again believers in Jesus Christ. And some of you might be like, okay, that's a little harsh. Like, come on, like, like they believe in Jesus, but just, you know, they just, they believe, you know, a little bit of works, like they're not that far off. Um, does that really mean that they're not born again believers? And the answer is yes. Um, and don't take it from me um, if you think I'm being harsh. The Apostle Paul, the re- that's the reason he wrote this whole letter. In fact, he is way more harsh than I am. I'm just saying they're not born again. Um, we'll look in just a second at some of the phrases that Paul uses to talk about these people. But the premise of the book of Galatians is that if you add a single work to the gospel, that if you believe it's Jesus plus any of your good deeds, then Paul says you don't have gospel anymore. If it's, it's either by grace alone through faith or it's by your works, but you cannot have both. That Paul writes in Romans that if you're paid for these works, then it's no longer grace. And Paul, in most of his letters, as we've looked at this letter, um, this, this makes Paul really angry when you add works to the gospel. In his other letters, like the book of Philippians, he opens with all of the pleasantries. And he's like, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. And he says, I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. If you read Galatians, Paul says, I'm Paul writing to you Galatians. And he says, I'm shocked that you've turned to a different gospel. He says, there's not another gospel, but you've turned to, to these false gospels. Why? Because you've added works to the gospel. He calls them foolish twice. He pronounces cursing on anyone who preaches Jesus plus works. And then he has harsh words for those people who believe it. And this is what we've looked at as we've studied this book. He says they're cursed, they're in slavery, they're in bondage, they're imprisoned. And he's used more phrases like um, if you adopt this Jesus plus good works gospel, you nullify the grace of God in chapter two. He says Christ died for no purpose In chapter two, he says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In chapter five, you're severed from Christ, five, four. You've fallen from grace, five, four. And he says, I fear I've labored for you in vain. That this is a big deal to Paul. And this should be a big deal to us. And it proves to us, as the writer of Solomon uh, wrote in Ecclesiastes, that there's nothing new under the sun. That the same issue that was going on in AD 48 when Paul wrote this to the Galatians is the same issue now is that the first heresy is the most common heresy in all of Christendom is that to be saved, it's you believe in Jesus and you gotta pitch in some too. You gotta be good enough. You gotta have Jesus plus you gotta obey these works. Plus you gotta get baptized. Plus you gotta get circumcised. And if you, you have Jesus plus anything else, Paul says, you've got nothing left. You've got no gospel. And we're gonna look today at the offense of the gospel And the offense of the gospel is it's Jesus alone, is the message of the cross is the gospel in its entirety. It's you and I add nothing to the cross. That's the offense, is we bring nothing. The gospel is the great pride crusher. 
Because man and our ego and our um, kind of bent towards glory and pride and arrogance, we like to add something so that we can make ourselves feel good. Uh, We've talked about it this week. Faith in Jesus Christ isn't all that offensive. What's offensive is faith alone in Jesus Christ, where you bring nothing to the table. You add nothing to what he's done. That's the offense of the gospel, as we'll see. Um, And Paul is serious about this, that any work whatsoever, if you add one, you no longer have gospel. And we've looked at a a quick overview of Galatians is in chapter one and two. He says, faith alone in Christ, no works required is the message that he was saved by. It's the message that others were saved by as he was preaching. It's the message that the apostles stamped and gave him the right hand of fellowship and said, yes, this is the gospel. That's chapters one and two. And in chapters three and four, Paul goes, all the way back to the Old Testament. And he says this is, he shows us in the Bible, in the Old Testament, how it has always been faith alone in Jesus Christ. We take this very, very seriously here at this church, as every church should. We really do. That this is a requirement to be a member of our church. Why? Because being a member of a church, uh, the church is those who have been called out by God, those who have been saved. And the last thing that I want to do is to give any of you any kind of false assurance when you're believing a wrong gospel. So if you come to our membership class, we have opportunity, and this is not a plug for next week's class, but um, it's, it's an illustration of why this is so important. But if you come, there's an opportunity for us to ask you, tell us about your faith in Jesus. How did you hear and understand the gospel? And we have an elder there, and our staff is there, and we listen Why? Because if we say, tell us about how you came to believe the gospel and you talk about good works and don't talk about faith in Jesus, our ears perk up. Why? Because the last thing we want to do is give you any kind of false assurance. Yeah, come into the group, come into the fellowship when you don't truly understand the gospel. And what keeps me up at night is to stand before Jesus one day and he, for him to ask me, why didn't you love them enough to tell them the real gospel? And for me to be afraid, to to push back on you, to say, hey, I'm hearing a lot of works. Where does faith come involved? Uh, For me to be afraid to push you on that, and that's what happens. If, if, If you come and we don't necessarily hear faith in Christ, we hear a lot of what you've done and a lot of works, then guess what? I get to be the bishop and I get to reach out to you and I get to set up a meeting and we get to talk and say, hey, tell me what you believe about the gospel. And the reason we take it so seriously is I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and he says, why didn't you love them enough to tell them? Because if I'm afraid of your opinion, that's really just love for myself. That's I love me so much that I don't want you to be displeased with me. As opposed to I love you enough to make sure that you understand the gospel. Does that make sense? So it's a big deal. And it's a big deal to Paul. It should be a big deal to us. And what's interesting is, so one and two is, here's the message that saved me and has saved others and the apostle stamp. Three and four is, here's how it's been this way throughout, from the first time God called Abraham, the father of all Jews, it was by faith alone. Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him as righteousness, the law didn't even exist until 500 years later. There's no way Abraham could be saved by the law because it didn't exist. And Chris brought up a good point this week um, that chapters five and six, Paul essentially argues from results. What does this gospel produce? 
What does faith plus works produce, as we'll see today? And what does faith alone in Christ produce? Because one of the arguments that we began to look at last week is these Judaizers that were preaching this faith in Jesus plus good works gospel. They were arguing that if you don't have the law, then it's just gonna lead to chaos. It's gonna lead to anarchy. If Christians just believe in Jesus and they have free grace, then it's just gonna lead to people doing whatever they want. And Romans talks about this and Paul's gonna talk about this in Galatians that it actually doesn't because believing the gospel is not just adding some facts to your mind. It's not just adhering to some theological truths. What happens when you believe the gospel? It's the love of God being poured out by the spirit of God in you and God removing your heart of stone, giving you a heart of flesh, making you a new creation, writing his laws on your heart and causing you to obey him out of love. It's God pouring his love in us and we experience that love and it causes us to love him and therefore love one another. It's not just you believe some facts. It's you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And now God has transformed my life because of this great love. And it doesn't lead to anarchy. It leads to joy and affection for Christ and love for my neighbor because I love him. Does that make sense? And that's what Paul has been arguing, but he's been arguing from results. So I wanna read just what we looked at last week because Paul's going to to pick up on this idea. He's gonna plead with the Galatians and he's gonna give us a little more about what these two different gospels produce. The faith alone in Christ, true gospel, and the faith plus works. Um, Ironically, they don't produce what you would logically think they would produce. So we're gonna look at it together. Um, But I just wanna read verses one through six and then we'll pick up uh, studying verse seven uh, just to give us some context and give us kind of a runway. Um, Paul says, for freedom, freedom from the law, Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the law. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you accept one work, Christ will be of no advantage to you I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law or by works. You've fallen away from grace. And what's ironic about that phrase is when we hear fallen away from grace, most of us think of bad people doing bad things and losing their salvation. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's actually talking about people who think they're good and therefore don't need the grace of God because they think they've earned it by their works. And he says, if you believe this other gospel, then you don't get grace. It's not you lost your salvation because you sinned. It's you believed a false gospel. And those who, are th- those who think they are righteous and who think they can earn it with their works, what's the one thing they don't need? Grace. Because they've earned it with their behavior. And he says, you have fallen from grace. Verse five, for through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, your works count for anything. But what counts? Only faith working through love. When it comes to your salvation, your works don't add or take away a single thing. What counts is faith in Christ. And what does that faith work itself out in? Love for God and love for your neighbor. And now he's going to continue that thought in verse seven. And he says, you were running well. And this is Paul. And Paul is no stranger to athletic illustrations or analogies. 
Um, he says it in 2 Timothy. He says it in 2 Corinthians. Um, Paul loves to use um, images of athletes. And he says, like an athlete, you are running well. And then he says, who hindered you? Who put this burden on you? Who cut you off, as Kathy read? Who stopped you from obeying the truth? And when he says obeying the truth here, he's not talking about good works to save yourself. I'll give you another example of where this happens. It happens in the book of 1 Peter. Um, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter one, he says that we've been sanctified by our obedience to the truth. And if you read that, you can be like, whoa, that sounds like works, right? You do good works and you're sanctified. That's not what he's talking about. What does he mean by your obedience to the truth? He, he's, he means believing the gospel. Because if you look at chapter four, um, he says in, uh, this will be on the screen. He says in uh, chapter four, verse 17, he says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? So when he talks about obeying the truth, he's talking about believing the gospel. How are we purified? How are we sanctified? We obeyed the truth of the gospel. The gospel is good news, but it's also a command to repent and believe. And to obey it is to repent of your sin and put your faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And he says, that's how you're purified. You obeyed the truth. And then he says, judgment's coming for us. And then he says, but how much more for those who don't obey the truth or don't obey the gospel, who don't believe the gospel? Um, when Jesus is approached in John chapter six, they say, what, what, what work must we do? And he says, here's the work you must do. Believe in the one whom he has sent. That's your obedience, is believing in Jesus Christ. And he says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you from obeying the true gospel? And he says in verse eight, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. If you remember in chapter one, he says, and I love how Paul keeps it personal. He says, I'm astonished that not that you've added, you know, works, not that you've done this. He says, I'm astonished that you're deserting the one who calls you. I love how Paul keeps bringing it back to the person of Jesus. It's not you just, you believe something wrong. It's not just you added a little bit of heresy into your theology. It's you've deserted a person. You've deserted Christ. That if, if you fall into faith in Jesus plus good works required for you to be saved and get to heaven, then you don't just believe wrong facts. You desert the very person of Jesus Christ because Jesus came and he said, I've fulfilled the law in your place. I've finished the work. I've paid the price. It's done. And if you say it's not done, Jesus got me close, but I'm gonna finish it with my works, then you walk away from Jesus. Paul said in chapter five, you've severed yourself from Christ. Christ died for no purpose if this is what you believe. But I love how Paul keeps bringing it back. He says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. It's not from Jesus. And then Paul's going to give us, if you're wondering, okay, like I get it, but it's still pretty harsh. Paul is going to give us a proverb, a wisdom principle as to why he is being so stern about this, why we care so much about this. And it's in verse nine. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He says, if you get just a tiny bit of false gospel, if you get just a little bit, if, if you add one work, then you ruin the whole thing. It leavens the whole lump. 
This is why last week we spent some time talking about false, false gospels that enter our home. And you're sitting there going, why is Parker talking about the, the music we listen to and the, the movies we watch and the, the statements we make in our house? This is why. Because a little bit of false gospel that seeps in can leaven the whole lump. This is why Ishmael had to leave. Some of you are like, that was harsh, right? Ishmael didn't do anything. Hagar was a slave. She was just obeying Sarah, her master. She had a son. And then God didn't choose that son because it was from works. It was from striving. And then they get kicked out of the land. And God in his grace said, I'm still gonna make him into a nation. I'm still gonna bless him. But I can't work through human striving. My blessing, my promise is always going to be through the word of God, the gift of God, the grace of God, not through human efforts. And this is why we take it so seriously because a tiny little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. If I gave you a five gallon jug of water and I dropped one drop of poison in it, would you drink it? Just a little bit of antifreeze in your big cooler of water. If you put one work in the gospel, you don't have gospel. If you put one drop of poison in it, it's ruined. Paul says a tiny bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. I'll give you an example of this. Um, my wife and I were watching uh, Saving Private Ryan on uh, Friday. And uh, I need a rule for movies, by the way. Um, I always feel conflicted. Uh, I, I think my rule, I was thinking about it this week, is if, it's, uh, if the movies occurred before the year 2000, then I can spoil it. I think that's kind of the rule. Because uh, I always feel conflicted. Like, and I, I never want to be the pastor that spoils recent or new movies. I, I can't stand that guy, and I never want to be him. Um, you know, take a special vote and remove me if I ever do that. But um, Saving Private Ryan happened in 1998, okay? And I'm going to spoil it for just a second, and I'm not going to harp on the movie. I'm not going to, you know, hate on it, especially this weekend. It's a great movie. I look forward to watching it with my son one day. Uh, but I want to show you just how quickly this can happen and how insidious this can be. Um, so let me spoil it for just a second. Uh, one of them is not going to be very um, shocking. I mean, the movie's called Saving Private Ryan. Uh, so uh, newsflash, they save Private Ryan. Um, it would be pretty cruel if they called it that and somehow Private Ryan doesn't make it. Um, but essentially the plot of the movie is Private Ryan um, needs to be picked up. Um, he's stationed somewhere and I won't give you all the events, um, but Tom Hanks uh, plays Captain Miller and he is um, given this kind of battalion of really good actors and they're supposed to go and find Matt Damon, who's Private Ryan, uh, for a series of reasons and bring him back. His time in the war is done and uh, it's in World War II, um, fighting, uh, I think this particular movie is set um, against France and uh, you've got Tom Hanks, with his crew, going to find Ryan. And uh, the whole time, you know, Tom Hanks is this very stoic captain. Uh, you don't know much about him. He alludes to the, the fact that he's got a family and a wife and those kind of things. And over time, as you get closer to the end of the movie, you start to hear more about him and about to, you know, his family and his wife and how much he loves them and all those kind of things. And the director does it on purpose to really pull your heartstrings just because right before, you know, everything's about to end, uh, they, they find Private Ryan through a series of events and, you know, Matt Damon shows some of his nobility because it's like, I can't leave here. We're, we're guarding one of the two bridges that the, the United States has you know, control over. And if I leave, what's gonna happen to my men? So if you wanna get me and take me back, you're gonna have to stay here and help us fight. So they do that. It's a great movie. And you know, the director's getting you, you know, 
to fall in love with these characters. And then you know, it's like right before things are about to end. And this is where the spoiler um, happens is Tom Hanks character. Hopefully you've seen the movie. Um, he dies and he's the captain. You, you get to love him. And right before Private Ryan's about to go back, um, he ends up dying. And right as he dies, Private Ryan who all these men came to save him and rescue him and went through all of this effort. They lost a couple men along the way. Um, Tom Hanks looks at him and he says, earn this. And then just in case Private Ryan didn't hear him, he says it again. He says, earn this. And I get the sentiment and I agree with it. Um, the sentiment is that we should all live in light of the sacrifice that our uh, military men and women um, have given and we should not take it for granted. Um, but I think it's just a poor choice of words. Because the movie ends with Private Ryan, uh, Matt Damon as an older man, and he's got his four daughters around him and his son and some of his grandchildren. And you just see the level of anxiety as he's um, at Arlington National Seminary, uh, Cemetery. He is looking at Tom Hanks's grave and he's just still overcome with anxiety. At, and he says, I, he's looking at the, the headstone and he says, I have thought about what you said to me every single day since you said it. And I have lived every day to try to be good enough to earn this. And he's just weeping. And he says, I hope I've done it. And his wife comes over and, and he starts weeping and looking at her. He says, am I a good man? Have I been a good husband? Am I a good man? And she says, sure you have. But that idea of earn this, and I know the message isn't, you know, the movie's not trying to present the gospel. Um, but as, as captivating as that phrase is, when I watch this movie with my son, we're gonna pause it and we're gonna say, look, as inspiring as that is, um, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not, Jesus did all of this for you, now go earn this. Because just like Private Ryan, we will live our entire lives wondering if we've done enough to earn it, which we never can. You can never do enough good to earn someone laying down their life for you. The only way to reciprocate that is to lay down your life, right? There's not enough good. And you just see the anxiety of this older man. And, and hear me, like I said, I, I'm not hating on the movie. I totally agree with the sentiment and what they were trying to accomplish. Um, but it, you can see how just this inspiring little moment to where my son could watch that and go, oh, that's what Jesus has done for me. I need to go and earn it. Imagine the burden you put on someone when you say, hey, Jesus paid for your sin forever, every sin you've committed, past, present, future, with his own flesh and blood, now go earn it with how you live your life. Imagine the anxiety. Does that make sense? They can, it, it can just creep in everywhere. So like I said, it's not the point of the movie, but I wanted to show you just how quickly this stuff can come in to our minds and to our hearts and to our lives. But Paul is being very serious when he says a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And this is why we get pretty serious about false teachers around here. And some of you are like, wow, you're pretty harsh. But this whole sentiment of, yeah, I know he's a little off on the gospel, but everything else he says is pretty good. Everything else he says, you know, makes a lot of sense. He's really inspiring. Yeah, he doesn't always preach, you know, faith alone in Christ. Yeah, it's a little prosperity, it's a little Jesus plus works. But he means well, and he's really inspiring. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. False gospels are determined to grow and increase. And this is why Ishmael had to go. This is why Paul writes this entire letter. 
to protect us from falling into not just a little bit of error, but to falling out of the true gospel and therefore out of God's grace because we do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does Paul say? In verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And I love this. In the midst of all of this, um, I hope you've noticed that Paul still calls them brothers, that they haven't completely fallen away, that they are in the process of, of believing this false gospel, but it's never too late to repent. Now they can't undo their circumcision, but they can um, repent of thinking that it saves them. They can repent of their works and fall on the grace of God at the cross and say, I know that I don't do anything to add to this. And Paul calls them brothers. He's patient with them. He's kind with them, but he's also stern and he doesn't compromise the truth. And notice who his confidence is in. He doesn't say, I have confidence in you, that you'll get it right. What does he say? He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And what he's essentially saying here is, is I have confidence that if God has called you and God has truly saved you, he will keep you. Why? Because that's what God promises in his word. This is what Jesus says in John 6. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. Your translation may even say no one of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him upon the last day. Paul writes in Philippians 1 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Paul says, I'm not confident in you, I'm confident in the Lord, that if he's truly called you, if he's truly transformed your heart, you'll hear the word of God, you'll believe the gospel, and you'll come back. And that's where his confidence is. And what's interesting about this verse is just as confident that Paul is about um, the true believers coming back, he's also confident that the, the false teachers are gonna get their punishment. He says, I'm confident in the Lord that he's gonna bring you back and I'm confident in the Lord that he's gonna punish those who are preaching this false gospel. Just as sure about both, that there is special punishment. Paul says in chapter one that they would be set aside, these false teachers, they would be a curse. They would be set aside for the wrath of God. Those who are intentionally preying on these weak believers. But then he says this in verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And here's what he's talking about here. Um, you can derive from this verse uh, rightly that one of the attacks the Judaizers were making to the Galatian churches was they were essentially saying, hey, Paul preached faith plus works too. This is why you should believe it. The apostles preached it, Paul preached it, and none of this was true. Um, and they might've been just misinterpreting Paul. They might've been intentionally misleading and misrepresenting Paul. Or some of them might've been thinking about Paul's days before Jesus. Paul was a Pharisee before he met Jesus. And he was all about the law. And they might've been you know, telling a half truth and say, hey, Paul, you know, Paul's preached before about obeying the law. He was all about it. That was the one thing he preached, was obey the law of Moses. And that was obviously before Paul heard the gospel. So who knows what their motive was, but some, one of the arguments that the Galatian church was hearing is that Paul preached faith plus works. And Paul says, if I'm still preaching that, then why am I being persecuted, right? 
I wouldn't be going through all this, being stoned, being ridiculed, being slandered, being persecuted, if I was just going along with the faith plus works gospel. He says, the fact that I'm suffering shows you that the gospel is offensive. He says, I can't remove the offense of the gospel by adhering to this false teaching. And here's the point. The gospel is offensive. Why? Because it goes directly against our pride. Our world runs on works and earning from your work. You work to get the grade, you work to get the letter jacket, you work to get the job, you work to get the paycheck, you work to get the accolades. The gospel goes directly against that. It's very offensive. In fact, the gospel is your works are like filthy rags before God. You can't be good enough. You can't do good enough. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only truth, the only life, and the only way you get to the Father is by admitting that you bring nothing to the table. You offer nothing to this equation. You come to him by admitting that you're not good enough and you can't be good enough. But man loves to add things to the gospel to inflate our own ego so that we get some praise and we get some sense of accomplishment and we get some merit in this whole deal. And the offense of the gospel is you can't do anything to earn it or to deserve it. Now here's the deal. That's great news to someone who knows that they're broken. That's offensive news to someone who thinks that they're righteous. And we see this is the, the, the gospels on display in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is you see Jesus show up to those who know they are broken. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, those with demons, people who know they need a savior. And it's those people who run to Jesus. But it's the people who think they are righteous, who think they have earned this thing by their good works, who are offended by Jesus, who ultimately plot to kill Jesus, who ultimately stir up the crowds to yell, crucify Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus not only died for the rebellious, which he did, but he also died for the religious, that both can come to the cross. The rebellious can get forgiveness for their works. The religious can repent of their good works and everyone can find grace at the foot of the cross. And that's what Paul's gonna show us over these next few verses. But the gospel message is offensive It's showing up to someone and telling them that they're not good enough and they can never be good enough. That you and I can't earn it and can't deserve it. And as I said, that's great news to someone who the spirit of God has shown that they're broken. And what's ironic about this study, um, I I cited the 2020 study um, of uh, um, Arizona Christian University. Um, In 2023, I said they put this out every year, the number went down. It's not 52% anymore. I think it's down to like 46. Um, And there's lots of theories as to why. Some people think the pandemic had a lot to do with it because it showed us that we're not as good as we think we are. That when suffering comes, when trial comes, and you have to really think about your life and the afterlife, um, people started to really realize, okay, maybe I'm not as good as I think. Maybe I, I can't earn this with my works. Lord willing, it's because faithful churches started preaching the true gospel and the pandemic helped and all of those kind of things. But our prayer is that that number just keeps going down as the true gospel gets preached. But the offense is that you and I can't make the slightest contribution and that cuts against every ounce of personal achievement in us. 
The gospel is an unimaginable gift from an unobligated giver to undeserving people. That's the good news. God gives us the free gift of his grace. Unimaginable, undeserved. He's unobligated to do it. It is solely because he loves us and he gives it to undeserved people. That's what makes it so, so good. And the gospel keeps us, Tim Keller is known for this, um, the, co- the gospel keeps us to the degree that you believe the gospel is to that same degree that you won't fall into pride, right? The gospel keeps us from pride. The more you believe the gospel and remember the gospel, the less prideful you will be. Why? Because believing the gospel reminds yourself that you've done nothing to earn this. It keeps you from pride. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. I can't boast. That's why in Ephesians and uh, Romans, um, all over the, the New Testament, it's that we cannot boast, It's by grace, through faith, it is not of your works so that no one can boast. Why, I can't be prideful, because I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But it also keeps us from despair, because we're more loved than we could ever imagine. So believing the gospel keeps you from anxiety and despair because you're loved, but it also keeps you from pride, because you haven't done anything to earn it, or deserve it. That's the goodness of the gospel. And he says this in verse 12, and I love how Paul just throws this in there, kind of like a haymaker randomly. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. He's like, those people who are preaching this Jesus plus circumcision to be saved. Uh, the word, the Greek word for circumcision is the word peritome. Tome is to cut, peri is around. Uh, you see what, why that means circumcision. Um, Paul uses the Greek phrase for cut off. He says, I wish they would just keep going. I wish the knife would slip. I wish they would just cause some damage to themselves because of the spiritual damage that they're preaching to these people and praying on them. I won't get any more graphic than that, but I love that that's in there. And then he says this, verse 13, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. And here's the deal. The gospel sets you free, but it doesn't set you free to just do whatever you want. Why? Because it's it's, it's leaving the law of Moses, but it's submitting to the law of Christ. It's out of the goodness of God. He gave me himself. So now I want to love him. It's not duty. It's not now I have to pay him back. It's not obligation. Oh, now I've got to go to church and I've got to read my Bible. Those that truly understand the gospel say, I want to know God more. I want to be around other believers who point me to Christ. I want to have fellowship with them because they know Christ. I want to please him. I want to know him. I want to enjoy him. I want to walk with him. You don't do it perfectly. None of us do. But now there's this desire. I had no desire before I heard the gospel and believed the gospel to be at church or to be around people or to read the Bible. But when I heard that there was a God in heaven who looked down on me, a rebel and a wretch and a sinner and loved me so much that he gave his own son and his son willingly went to the cross for me, that's not just adhering to some spiritual facts. That changes your heart from the inside out. That makes you a new creation. Heart of stone, gone. Heart of flesh, in. Spirit of God, in, dwells us, and he changes our hearts. Writes his law on our hearts. Now I want to obey him. And I'd never do it perfectly. But now there's a desire to walk with him. So this freedom doesn't just lead to license to do whatever I want. It's a freedom now that I'm no longer burdened by works to try to earn God's love. I already have it. So now I get to respond with love for God and love for neighbor. 
This is what the freedom does. And he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity to, for the flesh to satisfy and gratify yourself. But through love, <coughs> serve one another. Here's why, verse 14. For the whole law, he's referring to the Mosaic law. This is what the law was intended to do. It's fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Multiple times when Jesus was asked about the law, he said, what's the greatest commandment in the law? How do, you, how do you summarize the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commandments hang the entire law and the prophets. On one of those occasions was in Luke chapter 10. Jesus was asked by a lawyer, just trying to trick Jesus. He said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds with, here's what the law is meant to do, to love God and love your neighbor. And then what does Jesus do? He tells a story <clears throat> about a Samaritan who went out of his way to, to beyond what anyone would <laughs> deem necessary to give up his clothes, to give up his money, to give up his time to help a Jew, a Samaritan helping a Jew. He says, this is what the law was intended to do. It was to create out of love for me and what I've done for you is to create love for neighbor. Here's a picture of what understanding the gospel does in the heart of a believer. And why is that? So amazing because it's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. He's the one who found us dead on the side of the road. He gave up his clothes. He gave up his, um, not his money, but he paid the ultimate price so that you and I could be brought to life. And he says, this is what the law was meant to do. The whole law is fulfilled and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says this in Romans 13. He says this, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the, the 10 commandments were designed to do. To cause us to love one another. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And here's the deal. This is why this is so important. And here's kind of our application for today. Your belief in the gospel is directly related to how much love you will have for one another. To the degree that you love and understand the gospel, to that same degree you will love others. But to the degree that you and I forget the gospel is that same degree that we will not love one another. What do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. If, if my gospel is that my worth and my significance comes from my reputation, right? If I believe that false gospel, then it will affect how I love others, 100%. Why? Because if, if my significance doesn't come from Christ, but it comes from my reputation, then I will only love people who help my reputation. And even if I choose to love you, then I will only love you to the point that it doesn't hinder my reputation. Does that make sense? If my security doesn't come from the gospel, but it comes from how much money is in the bank, which there ain't much, but if that's where my security comes from, then I will, it will hinder my love for you. It's a false gospel. And I will only love you to the point where I feel like I still have enough security in the bank. I won't love you extravagantly like Christ has loved me in the gospel. I will only love you to the degree that I still feel secure and that it doesn't affect me. Does that make sense? If my worth comes from my job, my significance comes from my job and what I do, then it will hinder the way that I love you. 
Because I will only love you to the point that it helps and gives credit to my job. And if it comes between working my job or loving you, then I'm gonna say no to loving you so I can work the job because that's where my worth comes from. Does that make sense? Whatever you find your worth, your value, your security from, if that's the gospel you believe, it hinders your ability to love others. But if my worth and my value and my significance comes from what Jesus has done for me and how he's lavishly loved me, then my money doesn't give me security, so I'll give you whatever you need. That my reputation doesn't give me my worth. So if loving you hinders my reputation, then I'm willing to do it. Do you see how freeing that is? That to the degree that you and I believe the gospel is that same degree that we love one another. And this is the irony of Galatians 5. What the Judaizers thought would lead to anarchy, faith alone in Christ, actually leads to freedom. And what's more ironic is what they thought would lead to order is faith plus works, is obeying the law. Paul's going to say is actually going to lead to us biting and devouring one another. That if we as a church, if you as an individual, if you believe a Jesus plus good works gospel, it's going to lead to, to the death of this church. If it's Jesus plus your performance and you gotta earn God's love, as soon as you think you've earned it, you're gonna look around at everyone else and you're gonna start expecting them to earn it too. And we're gonna start to hear the whispers of, did you see how their kids behaved at church? And did you see what they posted online this weekend? And did you see what they believe politically? And did you see how they acted when they went to this thing? And did you see how they responded when they were angry? And if it's based on our works, we will bite and devour and kill each other spiritually because we will start expecting and putting standards on people that Jesus Christ doesn't put on anybody. It's come all who are weary and having laid in and I'll give you rest. But what everyone thought would lead to chaos, which is faith in Jesus Christ, it actually leads to the ultimate love for one another. And what everyone thought would lead to order, Jesus plus you gotta behave, actually leads to anarchy. And that's why Paul says in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. When works are required, we will fight, we will war against one another, we will devour one another, because that's what happens when legalism enters into a church. It's, yeah, it's great that you're here, but you weren't here last week. We've been keeping tabs. Hey, did you see so-and-so was at the lake again this weekend and not at church? They must not be saved. And we start to, to make these quick judgments on people. Why? Because it's not just what they believe at the heart level about Jesus. It's Jesus plus their good works. Did you see what their kids did? Did you see how they behaved? Did you see them last weekend? We will bite and devour one another if we add works to the gospel. The gospel is that God has given us an unimaginable gift by an unobligated God to undeserved people. And what does that do? It transforms a heart. Takes out a heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh and causes us out of love for what he's done to love one another. So church, let's believe the gospel. Some of you in here, especially if you're a guest, maybe you believe it for the first time. There's good news today. You don't have to earn God's love. You can hop off the roller coaster of trying to be good enough to 
please God. You can come to him and admit that you can't. And for the rest of us, we have to believe this gospel. Because if not, as soon as we forget it, we'll start to put standards and expectations on one another that aren't gospel. Grace and forgiveness will go out the window because we'll start expecting people to behave and earn it based on their works. But to the degree that we believe and understand the gospel, that will work itself out. God will pour his love in our hearts every day as we remember the gospel and that love will overflow to one another. Because every day I'll remind myself that I'm a wretch, that I need grace. And when you fall short, I know what it feels like and I can extend grace. When you mess up, I know what it's like to be forgiven. God forgives me every day so I can forgive you. But if I've earned this and I've worked for it, when you've messed up, you gotta get yourself out. You gotta dig yourself out of the hole. You gotta do a couple good works to make up for your last bad one. It will lead to us devouring one another. So God, we pray that we would be a church who believe this gospel that sets us free, not to go and do whatever we want, That's someone who thinks they believe the gospel that hasn't, but someone who's truly understood how much you love us. God, it always leads to us responding with love for you and love for one another. God, that we can give up all those things that the world says makes us who we are, makes us significant, gives us security, gives us satisfaction and pleasure. God, we can finally leverage all of those things to love each other because we're no longer holding on to them tightly for our worth and for our value. So God, help us to find our worth and our value in what you've done in the cross, to believe it wholeheartedly and love one another selflessly to the glory of your name alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.